Dr. Eric Reinhardt achieves many things at once. He's a physician and an anthropologist, but he prefers to integrate these disciplines and apply the combination to other areas of study. Drawing inspiration from trailblazers like Paul Farmer, he takes both a global and a granular view of the problems of impoverished communities and the systems they inhabit to document, understand, and ultimately help heal the wounds caused by systemic disadvantage. In this episode, Reinhardt discusses how his upbringing, education, and work cultivated nuanced views of accompaniment, empathy, and nihilism. He also looks at the role institutions have in addressing the needs of communities in Chicago, where he lives and works, and around the globe. Eric Reinhardt, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great that you can make time for this, uh, you know, looking at your profile and your resume and all of your great work on the internet. I'm surprised you have time for us, but we're very grateful um, to, to have you here with us. Um, take us through your um, your journey of finding um a vocation. I, I won't say it's a vocation because you're a political anthropologist, a psychoanalyst, and a physician. Uh, that's that's actually three different things, and each one requiring a lot of work. And um, most people, you know, could find that could find sort of their calling in life with one of those things. Um, but you chose three. Why did you do that? I don't know how much I chose any of them, honestly. They're all kind of um, products of accident. Uh, when I went to college, I had the, the privilege of studying in the history of science department at Harvard. And there's a, a great historian there at the time. His name is Charles Rosenberg, Alan Brandt, a historian of medicine there, Jeremy Green, a series of people. And, and Paul Farmer and Arthur Kleinman were just down the road in the anthropology department as medical anthropologists. I was drawn to the study of the history of science, particularly the history of American medicine and psychiatry, I think because of my childhood exposures. So I'm backing way up and answering yeah, in a very circuitous kind of way. Um, you know, I, I grew up, as a lot of Americans have, in a rather conservative religious environment. And one particularly important part of my childhood is my older brother was born deaf. Uh, and the in social environment in which we grew up in was, was very, very structured and very normative in, uh, in that there were specific ideals that one was supposed to attain to moral ideals, ideals of the self, uh, concepts of ability that were very important. My brother, in some way, was outside of that, as he would be in many environments in the U.S., because of the fact of uh, a pronounced disability that was unavoidable. And I, as his younger brother, five years his junior, uh, grew up always interpreting for him. So I was alongside him in all these different social spaces, and I was processing as kind of only hyper-empathetic child can do, and that I think only children have this kind of excessive capacity for empathy. You lose it as you grow older, and I think probably for good reason in part. But I was very aware of how he was being processed with his frustrations in these spaces before I even had language for it. And it was quite... Um, important to him that he not be seen as disabled, that he not be seen as less than people around him, they not be seen as somebody who has uh, lesser life potential. And for him, as he grew older and took on his identity as a deaf individual with a capital D, this was a cultural identity. This was not a disabled identity. This was uh, a culture with its own language, with its own schools, with its own history that was quite important to him and to the people in his community. And so I was very aware from a young age of the way in which ability, disease categories, uh, identity is processed through very different uh, apparatuses depending on who you're talking to. So when I was at, you know, an undergraduate and I was studying the history of medicine, the history of medical ideas and disease categories and disability, et cetera, this resonated with me immediately. The recognition that what could be seen as abnormal to one is seen as ideal for another. Uh, so that set me on my way in some kind of way. But then I also didn't really have much um, 
imagination at that point in my life. I hadn't seen academic environments outside of going to college. I didn't know people who were professors. I didn't know people who were writers. I didn't know that was a possibility. But I had to get a job. <laughs> I had to have some way to, to make a living. And I didn't know you could do that by being an academic or a writer. But I did know you could do that by being a doctor. So I thought, well, I guess I could do that. So I went to medical school, in part for very practical reasons and lack of imagination. But also, I think as a continuation and part of what I had studied and what I'd been thinking about and how it affected the social environment around me that I saw. So when I was in medical school, I was also very conscious of the training I had prior and my social experiences and the way that the people that I was seeing as a medical student, the patients I was seeing, were being subjected to very particular systems of meaning and value, and that this had immense consequences for their lives. And so I was a little bit, I think I felt a little bit to the side of the normal structure of medical training. I had been given the kind of critical apparatus with which to think through it that not everybody has had the privilege of, of being exposed to prior to admission into one of those kinds of contexts. And then as I was studying medicine, uh, this is on the south side of Chicago, where healthcare exclusion is quite pronounced, where decades of dispossession in very concentrated areas and neighborhoods, uh, where the main form of contact with the state is through the policing and carceral apparatus, I was very keenly aware of the institutions uh, that we often celebrate, like universities, like hospitals, how they are interpolated into these processes of exclusion, how they shape the neighborhoods around them in ways that they imagine are humanitarian, that they imagine are bringing benefit, but often are participating in, in various forms of exclusion and harm. So from that environment, I thought, well, I need to do more than simply think about the history of medicine or disease categories and how these things are fungible and what ends they serve and who is in power behind their design and implementation. And I also need to do something more than simply treat patients through these institutions that have all these power. I need to be able to articulate with these ideas in an active kind of way. I need to be able to have some skill set with which to try to redirect the course of these institutions. Um, this in my early 20s, I think I had you know, quite a lot of ambition <laughs> in this way to imagine that I would be able to do such a thing. But the arena where that seemed possible was something um, like anthropology, where it wasn't just the study of the historical construction of ideas, but their application now and engaging with them in a very active way outside of institu institutional parameters in neighborhoods with people in their daily lives. So that's how those kind of different things came together there. Um, the other element of my own formation came through psychoanalysis, and I was in part through my ethnographic work for my own personal reasons as well. But when I was working with people as an ethnographer on the south and west sides of Chicago and thinking about how history and political economy had shaped everyday life, the things that people often came to me to talk about, I was, as an ethnographer, I was writing in, I was working in um, community writing workshops for the most part. What people wanted to write about in these contexts often had to do with traumas that they had experienced early in life throughout life. Uh, and I didn't know entirely how to process this or how to engage with it. And I had already been reading psychoanalytic theory as part of my graduate training in anthropology and history and just in, in general in critical theory. Um, but then it became very real for me in a different kind of way when I was in these very intimate um, interactions with people in everyday life as they're negotiating ongoing trauma and violence. And psychoanalysis for me became an important um, way to myself process what it was I doing, I was doing, what it was I had become implicated in, and also to try to think about how I could effectively respond or how I could think about effective collective response, not just as an individual, but what kinds of systems could be built more broadly. So a, a lot of what I just said, uh, in a play, but like a very basic part of this also is that um, you know I mentioned growing up in a very conservative Christian environment in the U.S. and there, as is often common in, in these communities, religious communities, and not just religious communities, there is a very strong sense of a of an ideal ego. Um, you are to be this particular way, and you view yourself from that position. And I was, as a very young child, uh, also very much caught up in this, but then I also began to see how it affected people who fell afoul of the normative system. My brother, other people who couldn't conform 
to the ideal that was set before them. And increasingly, these kinds of normative expectations began to feel oppressive to me, in part vicariously through others. I actually didn't you know, have so, so hard a time. I didn't have a pronounced disability. I wasn't a, you know, a black individual in a predominantly white space or a queer individual at this time. So it was, it was more just a kind of sense that people around me were affected in very negative ways by these structures. And since that time in my early childhood, I always then had a kind of reaction to the expectation that one fit a particular mold where I had a, a compulsive resistance to it. I always wanted to do something a little bit to the side of what the normative structure dictated. It wasn't a choice per se, but just a, um, yeah, a, a compulsive reaction to it, I think, came from that early exposure. So I've described how these different things have come together, but part of it was also that as, as I've done each thing or trained in each arena, I've always felt that I needed to do something that would put me outside of it just a little bit so that I wouldn't risk falling into a kind of blind submission to the normative structure that a particular discipline or a particular profession um, imposes upon people who participate in it. Um, Some of that has been disabling for me and some of that I think has also been productive. It's an interesting way of, uh, of combining, you know, these specialty focuses that combine to create kind of a generalist approach um, to uh, working life, um, which is, I think, one of the challenges that we have right now in our society, which is over-specialization in our, and in our economy, over-specialization and not enough attention to uh, multiple, you know, developing um, multiple sets of intellectual muscles that do different things um, that can help people kind of cope with change, uh, it, you know, having, having some of that, um, rigidity taken away or some of that narrow focus broadened out, um, is really, I think, indispensable to dealing with change. Okay. So who, who would you point to as, uh, people who really had a profound influence on your development? Yeah. Um, for reasons related to what I was just explaining, I have a kind of resistance to mentorship structure mm. that's ingrained in me. But there have been people who have nonetheless been incredibly important for me. I think, you know, I mentioned my brother. It wasn't just witnessing my brother in these environments that shaped me, but also the, the confidence my brother had in me, uh, a unique kind of confidence that I can only have in those kinds of intimate family relationships. And that, that really, from an early age still to the present moment, has been something that's been really important for me. Um, but there are other people as well. So, you know, later I had the, the good fortune of, of working with Paul Farmer, who I met as an undergraduate and then was part of my graduate training and um, with whom I remained close in my own kind of way. He was close with like literally thousands and thousands of people uh, until he died uh, last year. But Paul gave me a model for somebody who was in the academy, in the university. So, you know, Paul is this um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but a quite significant figure in global health who was trained as an anthropologist, trained as an infectious disease physician, and from his early 20s, maybe even his teenagers, he, he began working in Haiti. Uh, and he was involved with others in building community health worker systems in more, many places around the world. And so Paul, who I met you know, as a student when I was at Harvard, um, wasn't like anybody else that I met. He wasn't just writing books. He wasn't just treating patients in a hospital. He wasn't just an ethnographer. He was doing all of these things and more and then always pushing the edges and the boundaries of each of these kinds of things. And he gave me a model for not just a way to work, but a way to relate to institutions. So when Paul first started working in Haiti, he and Jim Kim and Ophelia Dahl, he and Jim Kim, I mean, I wasn't around, but reportedly would go into the storerooms at the Brigham, uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, famous Harvard Hospital, and just basically raid the storerooms, put them in duffel bags, uh, and put all the supplies and take them to Haiti. And this instrumentalizing relationship to a rich, fancy institution to think about what can you do with it? How can you leverage its resources to do things that it never intended to do? The Brigham was not seeking to treat Haitian patients in Haiti, but Paul saw a way that he could do it, not just by taking you know minor supplies from a supply closet, but by over time building training programs where he routed Harvard resources and human capital through Haiti and brought Haitians to train in places. And I hadn't met somebody prior to that point in my life who had figured out how to articulate with centers of power in a way where you productively subvert them 
to do more than they intend to do. I, I have a kind of suspicion of institutional apparatus. You know, yeah, we we become picking, institutionalized in all up. these ways. I'm picking so I think yeah. Paul gave me a, a way to think about how I can be part of institutions in a way that I felt I could um, not simply conform to what they dictated I ought to do, where I could bring my, I could reconcile my ethical commitment to to the, to the conservative impulses of big institutions like this. Uh, so Paul was important. Uh, there's another guy who was really important for me. His name is Carl Bell. He's a psychiatrist on the south side of Chicago, community psychiatrist. Um, never rose to a you know high status of the kind that Paul Farmer did at Harvard, but was nonetheless incredibly influential for a lot of individuals, but also at an institutional level um, nationally. And he, he's a, a black man who grew up in the south side. His... Um, his whole family was actually, uh, his mother and father died qu- quite close to one another while he was a teenager. And then his brother also, uh, who's a police officer, was shot by another police officer and killed. So I think at the age of 16, Carl was, was alone um, without family. And he, he went to Meharry for medical school. He went to UIC for his residency here in Chicago. And he built himself a professional life, but didn't lose himself within professional norms. He's very much grounded in the Southside community from which he came. And his whole life was dedicated to studying the effects of childhood exposure to violence, in large part, but also how we could effectively prevent this. And I really admire that he's a very eccentric man. For the people who knew him, he wore like this uh, leather kind of cowboy-type hat around. He wore sunglasses inside in the hospital. There's nobody else like Carl Bell in these spaces. Uh, very eccentric man who I really admired. Um, and he died unexpectedly a few years ago. But he also gave me another way, uh, another idea of how you could be inside these institutions and do different things. And he also maybe showed me the limits in a way that, that Paul, Paul did and didn't in different kinds of ways. And that I, I think Dr. Bell became quite disillusioned over time, that all of these things that he had spent decades trying to do didn't have the effects that he wanted to see manifest. And he didn't have the capital, the institutional capital, uh, the reputational capital that somebody like Paul did, um, that Paul generated for you know, different reasons. They had access to different things. And I think seeing both the successes and the failures of somebody that I admired in such a way was very instructive for me as well. That's great. Uh, I mean, what? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so maybe more successful than he imagined uh, in terms of the secondary impacts um, that he had uh, through um, – the non-mentoring that he gave you. Uh, so yeah. I, I wanted to go back just for a second. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a religious person and have been part of religious communities uh, and have seen them struggle with what you're, what you described, which is how do you, how does an, a religious institution remain both open and uh, distinct at the same time. What are your thoughts on that? I think this is a really, really important question. And I think that religious communities have an enormously productive role to play in this country and, and around the world. And yet we also can look at history and see how religious communities and religious convictions have produced enormous harm, not just Christian traditions, Muslim traditions. I mean, every religion with a strict normative structure has an intrinsic potential for exclusionary violence that could be quite pronounced. So I think part of answering the kind of question that you're asking, which I don't see as just a question for me, but a question for these communities themselves, is how do you account for this latent potential, sometimes already manifest, for violence? And how do you cultivate a community that's open-ended rather than closed? And to, to me, that the... the ideal of an open-ended community, a community without defined borders, is incredibly important. To me, I see this as the center of the possibility of ethical relationships with other human beings, where I don't demand that you be like me, or you follow the normative system that I follow in order for us to have a relationship, in order for me to feel that I have an ethical accountability to you. And I see this as also something that this idea is also, I think, internal to Christianity itself and to many other religious traditions. So this is not in any kind of way a, an external criticism of Christianity to say that this is an important thing. I think this is a, an internal mandate in, within Christianity and other religions uh, as well. 
Um, how do you do that? Um, you know, one of the things that, so Paul, Paul Farmer was really important for me in a bunch of ways. And it wasn't just institutional relationships and how do you make use of a place like Harvard to do other things that he didn't tend to do. It's also that he, in a very personal way, modeled what was important to him, this idea of accompaniment. This is an answer to your question about religious communities. Paul himself is also very religious. He grew up in a Catholic tradition. His core ethical concepts came from liberation theology, a very particular strand of Latin American Catholic theology that mixed in part with Marxian ideas of um, political economy, of economic justice. And out of these different influences that Paul drew from, he developed this idea of accompaniment. Uh, something like the barefoot doctors in China or secular priests. So a lot of, I don't know if you're familiar with this, you may be, you may be more familiar than I am, but the term secular doesn't mean, in origin at least, it doesn't mean distinct from the church or from a religious community. You had in the Middle Ages secular monks. These are monks throughout Europe, where what distinguished them from the monks who were in the monastery is that they walked among the people. They didn't stay in the monastery. They went out and they lived through acts of service in their community. And these were secular monks. They were in the world. They weren't irreligious. They were deeply religious, but their religious practice was oriented around an actual practice on the ground with people. Accompaniment is something like that, except for it goes further and it removes oneself from a position of leadership, of maybe even necessarily helping the other in the sense that you know what would be good for them. And it demands a, a kind of radical humility where you put yourself in a secondary position and you follow. You, you can also think of musical accompaniment. You know, you have a violinist and a pianist and the violinist is, you know, up on stage and the pianist, if they're a really good accompaniment, they're in tune with that violinist and they follow their rhythm. This is the kind of task of accompaniment to dedicate oneself to accompanying those in need in whatever way they dictate for as long as they dictate. And it's not until they come to follow whatever you say is good for them or whatever is healthy or whatever is you know, morally correct. It's until they are able to, or maybe this never comes to be, so maybe it's infinite, this task, of, until they are able to achieve what's important to them, until they have the means of living in a way that they want to live. This is the task of accompaniment. And to me, that's, that kind of ethical impulse is very different from a lot of what we inherit in different religious traditions, which says, I am the leader. You will follow me. This is the model that you are supposed to um, emulate. And if you don't do that, I exclude you from this community. Or I'll give you a few chances, and at some point I stop giving you grace, which I don't think is maybe grace at all then if it has a kind of finite limit in this kind of thing. I, I think our ethical demands for another that we would get from religious traditions like Christianity are infinite. And accompaniment takes that seriously and says, you know, that we'll construct a relationship that's open-ended in time, it's open-ended in nature, and it's about my responsibility to uh, to accompany it, to be alongside those in need. Um, so I think if we were to be able to operationalize that kind of principle, that kind of open-ended interpersonal relationship, one-to-ones, and scale that up at the level of broader communities, I think we'd have a very different kind of concept of religious community um, than we often do now. Mm. So I would begin to think about you know, the demand for an open-ended community in the way that you're asking about it, through accompaniment. Yeah, it's yeah, it it very reminiscent of uh, the current Pope's teachings. I think of trying to uh, defer some of the doctrinal questions and focus more on the relational side of uh, the ministry of the Catholic Church. Um, and it is it, it it's just amazing to me. It's always amazing to me how much angst that generates um, in yeah. inside the religious community itself as people feel like they're surrendering something essential uh, about the community uh, when they engage in accompaniment. Um, yeah. Let's see. I've got let, – let, I, I want to go back to something else that you said, which uh, I, wanna, I want you to unpack it a little bit, which is about our capacity for empathy – and why uh, you, you talk about we lose that capacity over time. Can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, so I was mentioning uh, my empathetic relationship as a child to my brother. Now, my brother is a deaf man. 
I don't know what it's like to be deaf. I've never been deaf. As a child, I didn't really have a good sense of that, that I didn't, I didn't have a good sense of the limit between my experience and my brother's limit, my brother's experience. Um, my identity and my brother's identity or other people around me. When you are first born into the world and you're growing up, you are a part of the milieu and the boundaries between the different entities within it are unclear. Over time, we sharpen these boundaries. This is in part what we call identity, for example, your own particular identity. And you know yourself by what you are not. I am not mommy. I am not daddy. I am something else. And on the one hand, those kinds of boundaries of identity can become obstacles to ethical relationships to others. Um, I also think they become a very key part of the formation of prejudices. So part of why anti-black racism has become so important for the last many hundred years in the world is because European identity was defined by Immanuel Kant and others who were leading figures of the Enlightenment through the counterexample of the so-called uh, African or savage or indigenous person in the U.S., etc. That was how white European identity was shaped, through its inverse. And all of these ideal characteristics, idealized characteristics of the white European man, heterosexual, all these different you know, particular characteristics that were seen to be uh, enormous demand, this is what you should be, they were also established by putting their counterexamples in this imaginary figure of the other that was embodied by the African, for particularly the African, uh, in the imagination of that time. So that the, the rational man uh, knew himself by the e unreasonable, irrational, uh, bodily-driven characteristic of the African. And, you know, you can think about hypersexuality that's attributed to that side as a kind of response to or a way of defining one's very controlled sexual uh, behavior within the European Christian environment, et cetera, these kinds of things. So, so the, the boundaries between identities can become a, a means through which these imaginations are built and violence enacted through them. Because if, if you are distinct and you know yourself through these good characteristics and you know these good characteristics by their inverse and the bad form there, that legitimates the violence you enact on the other. So there's there's some you know uh, potential violence entailed in this, but there's also a really important part of distinction between oneself and other, which is if I never acquired the capacity to distinguish between my own identity, my own experience, and my brother's, then what I would still do now is what I did as a child, which is to overwrite his experience with my own. And we would be, for example, in a this is another way my brother is very important for me, in a public environment, say we're at a restaurant, and my brother only knows how to sign, he can't speak, he doesn't have oral communication skills, and so he's trying to order. And the waiter is frustrated, doesn't know my brother's trying to communicate, and my inclination as a six-year-old little boy is to say, oh, this is what he's saying, this is what he wants. And I would do that all the time, and it would frustrate my brother immensely. Because what was so important for my brother in that moment was not just to order whatever it was specifically that he wanted. It was to show that he was a full being who had the capacity to live in the world and to be independent and to assert himself and to engage with others without my mediation. And a, a lot of deaf children experience this, a profound frustration with the way that they are absorbed uh, as kind of subsidiaries of others, of their family members often, if they grow up in hearing families in particular. And so I think the, the development of the capacity to sever some of the empathetic relationship I had with my brother was really important for allowing him to be a distinct individual and to not overwrite without even realizing I was doing it, my experience, my desires, over the top of, of his. You know, empathy, as opposed to sympathy, is defined by an identification with the other. I don't just uh, feel bad, you know, imagine you might be feeling this way and I, I feel bad for you or something like that. I inhabit your position when I empathize with you. I imagine that, that I am you, that I am feeling as you are feeling. And the fact is we can never feel as another feels. They can never know as another knows. They can't experience. There are boundaries between. And recognizing those boundaries is incredibly important for catching ourselves, particularly um, you know, from privileged positions in the world, uh, from denying full being to others in some kind of form. So I think the the child, the early childhood incapacity to distinguish between these limits that we grow out of that, or many do, hopefully, uh, I think is quite important for enabling us to have an ethical relationship to one another. I'm, this is very important for me also clinically. 
you know, so I, I'm, I work as a psychoanalyst. I work right now within the field of psychiatry as well as a physician. And a lot of my patients have experienced extraordinarily difficult things in life and still do. We often in medical training will talk about the necessity of acquiring a certain kind of distance from, not just in psychiatry and all of medicine, from the sad things that our patients experience. Because if you're caring for a patient and they die, which happens, and you take that home with you and you experience that from a fully empathetic position, that's devastating to feel day after day. Mm-hmm. And you can't actually operate that way unless you have some curious kind of sociopathological characteristics. Um, so you need a certain kind of distance. We talk about that as a self-protective thing in medicine. That's how we're trained to think about it. But I think it's also as an ethical demand in relationship to our patients. We need to allow the suffering that they have to be their own in order for us to effectively articulate it articulate with it therapeutically. So I need to not imagine that I know what it has been like for my patients to experience sexual violence or other forms of trauma that they have encountered in their life in order for me to figure out how it is operating for them and how I can be useful as they try to negotiate it. So it's and, a way, and what that it's entails a way of then, respecting that experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and cutting empathy. Empathy can be hostile to the possibility for that respect, not just respect, but also a basic capacity to understand in a useful way what's happening for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I don't know how you feel about this, but when I look around American society, one of the things I think characterizes it at the moment um, is a crisis of empathy or sympathy and an inability to, for people to enter into in some way, the experience of others. Do you see it that way? Uh, Is that actually a problem based on what you just said, or is it just, this is just naturally who we are? Um, I mean, my position on this, uh, like the position I occupy in the world is a little bit different. So maybe my perspective is affected by that. Well, I, I'm a little bit resistant to that idea, as you might have expected, in that it easily plays into a broader discursive structure, an ideological formation in the world that shapes how we perceive things, that is characterized by an emphasis on morality, on personal individual morality. So, you know, doctors, we're trained to think we're a good doctor, the model of a good doctor, if we empathize with our patients. Empathy is quite important. I don't mean it's not important or shouldn't exist. It needs to have limits. But that in and of itself, to be an empathetic doctor, for example, does not necessarily make you an effective doctor, nor does it necessarily make you an effective caregiver within a broader social structure. So using the example of U.S. medicine, for example, U.S. doctors as a collective, as a profession, have really attached themselves to a moral identity. We are good, empathetic people. That has in part licensed, I think, for many, many decades, a evasion of responsibility for the broader political structure, the broader economic structure of healthcare in the U.S. that is massively damaging to people. Even before the pandemic, it's estimated, and this is, I think, a conservative estimate, that 68,000 people a year in the U.S. died simply because they could not afford healthcare in a for-profit system. You know, the U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the world now for over 25 years that does not offer health care to people as a basic right. It's, a, it's whether you can afford it or not, whether you can pay for it. And some people imagine that just means, oh, you go to the ED, the emergency department, or some other context, you get lesser care. No, you don't get care at all in the U.S. And people are dying by the tens of thousands every single year because of this. The U.S. medical profession, meanwhile, over these decades in which this system has been supported by us as a profession, built up by us, not only by us, there are other actors as well, We've, in that same period of time, uh, acquired salaries that are twice as high as the next closest nation in the world, Germany. Uh, We have enormous benefits from participation in deeply unequal systems. And this might sound like, well, what am I talking about now? Well, you you asked me a question about empathy. But I think it's in part this emphasis on empathy, on the individual morality of, of individuals that licenses, makes us feel okay about not addressing these broader structural issues. So I would say the real crisis that we have in the U.S. right now, in most places around the world, is not a, a lack of morality. People are as moral as ever. They are talking about morality all the time. 
we're not doing anything and we're not doing enough in relationship to political organizing to shift the basic economic structures that are dictating the nature of people's lives. And I feel like, you know, morality can be useful in mobilizing. Morality can also be very disabling to effective mobilization if you make the concern about your own individual feelings rather than about collective mobilization to actually do something at a political structural level. Yeah, I guess my question was, uh, it's very, very interesting. Uh, My question was, I was more thinking about at uh, kind of not just the healthcare system, but at the level of society where we've got, it's an era that is characterized by fracturing and division uh, and um, consolidation of, uh, of subgroups uh, within the society yeah. as, you know, in a kind of war of group against, uh, against group and an inability to kind of like see, uh, to see, to validate, to um, appreciate the experiences uh, of others. That's kind of what I was talking about in terms of a, a crisis of empathy. Um, I, I, I get what you're saying about the, uh, the healthcare yeah. system. Have you thought much about the broader social context? Yeah. Um, I mean, these are very, very complicated issues, and it's easy to say something that's far too simplistic, and I don't want to do that, but I'm sure I will nonetheless, uh, regardless of my intent. You know, there are various conversations, for example, about why is it that something resembling uh, fascistic impulses seems to be on the rise in the U.S. in certain segments of the population. And some people will say, well, if you're just focusing on uh, white supremacy or on categories of identity and not attending to the political economic roots of discontent, you are not really addressing the issue. You're just working at a surface level and mistaking the real root causes. I think that's a very important point. I think it's not adequate. I also think you know, what's being critiqued there, which is this emphasis just on uh, you know, racial imaginaries and divisions between groups, is also not adequate. These two things are interacting. The material, the, you know, the nitty-gritty economic realities of abandoned rural white communities, of abandoned communities like I work in in Chicago that are predominantly not white, that is affecting things. Um, and so I think... Empathy or the capacity to relate across differences. And I, th- I think those are quite different things. I need to talk about the distinction there, but I think that's a very important part of it. Um, I also think we need to have a, to, to think very in a very um, applied way about what are the root material causes of uh, that incapacity. Like culture doesn't just arise by itself. Culture is produced. It's manufactured by political decisions, by policies, by income distribution. That affects culture. A lot of people just write off American problems as, oh, it's a product of American individualism, just the way we are. No, we are this way because we have policy structures that enforce those cultural norms and have for a very long time. But I think um, I kind of accidentally back myself into a point that I think is important, which is I think it's important that we have the capacity to relate across differences. Empathy is not a cultivation of a capacity to relate across differences. It's a cultivation of a capacity to identify sameness. So this is the you know, tradition of humanism, for example. Uh, you may be black, I may be white, but we are both humans. And in that register, that common shared register, we can identify one another with one another. and We have some kind of human solidarity. That at the center of that is the valorization of sameness. By contrast, you could think of different ethical systems where what produces our shared, our, our point of unification is not that we are the same, but that we are both so different from one another and will always be so different that there's a certain kind of um, unifying isolation in that. Like uh, the, the fact that I, I know you will never know who I am, how I really feel, how I think. There's a radical difference that will never be bridged. And I know that you know that for yourself. Because you also experience the same kind of thing, even if you don't articulate it. And that's why I feel, I mean, that would be the, the kernel of sameness. The sameness is the fact that we are both radically different. Mm-hmm. And that is not necessarily empathy, or certainly not empathy in a traditional form. That is thinking about how are we connected to one another through the fact of our differences, rather than 
through the ways that we put our differences to the side and identify as the same because we're both Democrats or Republicans or share the same skin tone or language or whatever else. So I would resist empathy as the way that we would bridge difference, uh, or maybe uh, bridge isn't quite the right word, how we would relate across difference. And I think so maybe you, there's a different term or a different value I'd put forward. Okay. So would you um, would you characterize this radical difference between people as an aspect of human dignity? Um, these terms are so overladen with the traditions from which they come. So human dignity, I don't know, I haven't done like a proper study of where exactly this term comes from, but I, my reflex reaction is I think this probably has a, a deeply rooted um, relationship to to the tradition of humanism, which is rooted in this in this concept that our shared value, our value comes from the fact that we are fundamentally the same. So, I mean, I think dignity is very important. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm getting so esoteric or far afield that to be caught in kind of academic discourses to be useful, but I'm not sure that it's real located in human dignity. So I think animals also have dignity, for example. Um, you know, I think that, we have a responsibility to our natural environment in the world, to the planet. I don't know. I would say the planet has dignity, but we have a, an ethical responsibility that is not just about human dignity. And I, that, that responsibility to the world around us. When you were doing your wind up to this, you were, you know, uh, this is rooted in this tradition. And I thought you were going to say religion and you said uh, humanism. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I, I've always been curious about this overlap between uh, people who, uh, you know, religiously motivated, religiously inspired people talk a lot about human yeah. dignity and uh, non-religious uh, uh, people also have a very profound sense of, you know, sort of respect for uh, other persons. Um, yeah. and so anyway, I just, I, I thought, oh, he's going to say religion and then you switch to humanism and I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, so humanism it would be hard to separate from Judeo-Christian origins, even as many of the radical humanists of the 20th century were about atheists, for example, the ideas and their origin are really inseparable from many of the Christian, particularly Christian and Jewish traditions they come from, um, also Islam. So so in many ways, I'm not sure there's that much of a difference between saying humanism versus the religious origin. Um, I agree with you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's try to bring this down about 10,000 feet. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and see, you, you have uh, written on nihilism. I see this as a big problem uh, in, uh, in my work, uh, again, related to this kind of you know, how do we establish kind of a shared system of values that that can kind of guide and condition our relationships so that we can pursue the um, flourishing, uh, each other's flourishing? And I'm particularly concerned about this as it relates to a very specific issue of uh, the withdrawal of men from from the workforce, and we've seen this long-term decline uh, uh, going back decades now of, of men just kind of abandoning the idea of work uh, and falling into, and, and, you know, that's one thing, but then falling into a host of pathologies that are very destructive to them, to their families, to the communities that they live, that they live in. Um, there's been a lot of talk about deaths of despair from, you know, opioid mm -hmm use and alcohol and declining physical health. Uh, so uh, is this, where does this fit, both your thinking about empathy and your thinking about nihilism? Because what I see from my standpoint is that people oftentimes lack the capacity to make the social connection within work that is as important as the economic outcomes that work generates. Yeah. 
Well, my emphasis in relationship to nihilism um, might be a little bit different than, than many people who approach it. And their debate is about whether meaning is important or how we can obtain it collectively, etc. How I approach this is informed in part by clinical practice in psychoanalysis and psychiatry. Where my emphasis is on meaning-making, not on the specific meaning made, but the practice of meaning-making itself, mm-hmm. which I see as a very important part of psychic life, of social life, of community. And if you produce a system where you assign people meaning, a lot of people react negatively to this. Some people react very positively. You know, I, I mentioned growing up in a religious community, a lot of people found it very, very important, and I find this in medicine too also, to stick to the very specific prescribed meanings that were given to them. Any deviation from that, any deviation from the process that's assigned makes them very anxious, it makes them angry, it, you know, it, may, it pushes them to exclude others. There are others who have a different reaction. I'm, I fall more into this category where if somebody tells me this is why your life matters, this is what is. To me, I, 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 I feel enclosed by that. I feel like somebody's put a straitjacket on me and prescribed a future to me that I may not want. I want to be able to have the capacity to invent that future and to invent the meaning that will perpetually change over the course of living that future. And if we produce an economy that tells people your meaning comes from work and the work that's available to you and that you must perform and is the basis of your moral status in society is go work at McDonald's or 7-Eleven or in this particular factory floor or in an Amazon warehouse, and that is your meaning. That is not particularly inspiring for a lot of people, and I think actually that leads to a lot of death and despair as well. I mean, I see it in my patients. Many of them are gainfully employed in these kinds of occupations, but they are not at all uh, able to live the lives they want to live. So I think if we're to – go ahead, sir. Oh, no, I'm just agreeing with you. Keep going. Yeah. So I'm thinking if we're going to address the declining participation in the workforce, we have to think about not just the economic drivers of that, like the lack of uh, jobs, uh, wages. These are very important things. We can't neglect them. But also the way that available occupations and work gives people the freedom to make meaning, to invent meaning. And that may not be just through the work or maybe not even through the work at all. How do you give them time and space in communities to make meaning outside of their jobs? So if we don't invest in those structures and we lean on the McDonald's job, and McDonald's can, can be good work for some people. I don't mean to disparage that, but that, I think we're all familiar with that. And for some people, that is not a very meaning, uh, productive occupation. If we don't give them another option for, for making meaning in life, then I think, of course, you're going to have declining investment in the workforce. And progressively, what we've had in the U.S. is you know, with a decline of union participation, for example, with deteriorating workers' rights over decades, you've given l- people less and less reason to invest in the workforce as a, a site for generating possibly for the rest of their lives. You know, the r- real wages have fallen. People don't feel like they have power inside Amazon warehouses, for example, until you know, recent efforts to unionize. So I think if we really care about producing work opportunities for people and greater participation and meaning-making in the workforce, we have to empower for to be able to affect the workplace. Um, often people see these two things as opposed, somehow labor's, labor rights and you know, the interests of the traditional emphasis in the economy, et cetera, are somehow you know, non-synergistic things. I think these two things actually have to go together in a very important way. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, <clears throat> I periodically, when I get in front of college audiences, I kind of uh, counter-program because I'm I'm looking out at an audience of kids who have been basically trained to be careerists since they were in eighth grade and maybe before, you know, really thinking, trying to answer the question, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's a lot of anxiety-driven stuff uh, going on with around economic insecurity. And there's, there's very little opportunity for people to answer the preliminary questions of what do I want my life to mean? <laughs> what do yeah. I want? What do I, how, how am I going to generate this meaning that you're talking about uh, in my life? 
based on uh, things that go a lot deeper than some sort of technical skill that I might acquire through education, post-secondary education, or whatever it is. Uh, and and what happens, I think, you can tell me if this is true in your experience, but I see a lot of people get to about 32 to 35 um, who've made heavy investments in becoming an attorney or a physician or a computer scientist or whatever it is because they were told that this was a way to make a lot of money. Uh, and then they realize when they turn 35 that they've got 30 more years of doing this thing. But they don't, it doesn't really connect to who they are. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely matches with my experience. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, some of my examples come from the healthcare industry because I'm involved in it, but there's been a lot of talk, especially since the pandemic began of burnout within the healthcare industry among nurses, among doctors, among techs. And people are often focused on working conditions in that, um, the risk that you face at the workplace. Those things are all very important. Doctors, especially trainees, are overworked and they're undercompensated at early stages in their career and later they're overcompensated. Those are all important parts of it. But I think the one piece that's often missing is the meaning-making part that I mentioned earlier. A lot of people go into medicine, one, just because they want to have high status and good income. Uh, so then you know, they're going to face the problems you, you mentioned. And another set of people, sometimes overlapping, go in because they want to care for people. They want to have an effect in the world. And then they find themselves working in hospitals where a large proportion of their tasks, over the majority for sure, entails bureaucratic operations, filing paperwork, coding things, getting called by the uh, documentation specialist, make sure you code it differently so the hospital can charge more. And you spend barely any of your time with patients. The time you spend with patients is under bureaucratic duress and it's not satisfying at all and if you don't address the lack of policies that enable people to actually perform caregiving function then you're not going to be able to address burnout even if you would you know reduce people's uh hours and you increase their wages and you give them better infection control measures at their hospitals you're still going to have it'll, it'll be modified to some degree but you're still going to have this fundamental problem and I use the healthcare industry because I think about, you know, caregiving is the central priority there. That's, that's supposed to be what these systems are designed to do. Of course, they're designed largely to extract maximum profit because they're run by for-profit entities. And that's what institutionally these entities are motivated to do. That's just how it goes. Um, but I think that's also useful for thinking about the rest of society. You know, David Graeber, uh, the anthropologist who died, again, also unexpectedly, a bunch of people in my life who died unexpectedly in recent years, but he wrote this book called uh, Bullshit Jobs. Oh, yeah. That's about, you know, the absence of, of dignified work, to use, return to the term of dignity, but also of, of work that feels meaningful, that people can invest in in, a, in an affective way, not just economically, not just spend, spend their hours there, but they actually care about it. They feel for it in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem is we have for several decades in the U.S. now, divested from public infrastructure that provide a lot of these jobs where the motivating impulse for a public system, for example, is not to extract profit, but to bring a service to people, whether that's healthcare, whether that's the mail, whether that's youth support services, whatever it is, when you have a public infrastructure, there's the possibility then of a, of a genuinely nonprofit motivation that allows people to make room for meaning-making within the system. If you prioritize privatization, deregulation, uh, and basically unfettering this impulse for, for profit generation, I mean, maybe I sound like a cynical traditional Marxist in some kind of way here. I don't, I don't think I'm saying the same thing exactly, though. There are consequences that go beyond just matters of efficiency or how many people are served. There are consequences at the level for the capacity to make meaning within those systems. Because everybody knows that those systems at the end of the day are concerned about the bottom line. That's the nature of that structure. So I, had, I had a piece I wrote in for Slate a few months ago. I forget when exactly. But um, it's about, it was about gun violence, ostensibly. But really it was about the, the, the reason why gun control is in some ways a secondary issue. I think it's very important we have proper uh, gun control regulation and policies for this. But you first have to address, or maybe simultaneously have to address, the issue of public distrust. If you don't give reason, people reasons to trust their neighbors, you don't give them reasons to trust the state, to trust the government, 
then of course there's this production of a paranoia and an attachment to guns and a resistance to any regulation that would interfere with that because there's a fundamental distrust. And you see this pervade relationships to science, to vaccines, to medicine. There's profound distrust of all of these systems now. And I think that's a, a, a big part of that is the fact that we have privatized so much of what ought to be understood as a common public good. And this has been done in large part with the support of economists who are focused on economic calculations, not thinking about what goes beyond the economic to the interpersonal, to our imaginations of our relationships to one another that are dictated by whether something is run by a public or a private entity. And I think we have to take seriously the fact that privatization has significant consequences at the social and the psychic level that goes beyond just economic indicators. We're over time. Uh, this has been fascinating. I really have been so generous um, to talk with um, talk with me this afternoon. Uh, just to close us out, um, for people who are interested in uh, reading more about your work, um, first of all, where should they go? And then second of all, what kind of projects are you going to be engaged in coming up that are part of this meaning generation for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think meaning generation is very importantly done with others. Mm. So the thing that I'm preoccupied with now um, is how can we build public infrastructures that allow for that, that address multiple converging problems? So mass incarceration, lack of safety in our communities, poor public health, lack of access to health care, and the overdose crisis, for example, in the U.S. And I see as one common public system that would be important for addressing all these things to be something, I mean, my most ambitious formulation of this is a, a nationwide, a competent-based community health worker system, a community health and support worker system, because it's not just about health. And the idea for this would be that you give priority employment to formerly incarcerated people to provide care to their to one another. There are long-term consequences from exposure to incarceration that have huge public health effects in the U.S. When 70 million plus people have criminal records and tens of millions have been incarcerated over just the last couple of decades alone. So if you're really going to address public health, you have to address the most vulnerable populations, and these are very often formerly incarcerated populations. But it's also, if, if you were to invest in these people to provide care to one another and give them proper wages for it, sixty dollars to $70,000 a year, for example, a real living wage, that gives them the sense that this is actually dignified, meaningful work. And not just flipping burgers, which can be important, but it doesn't give people a sense of community of meaning in this way. That so we could produce kind of pipelines out of jails and prisons. Right now, we always talk about pipelines in. Well, how do we produce pipelines out? Well, let's train people inside to be community caregivers um, and integrate them in neighborhood networks of caregivers that are publicly funded. And we see this, I think we'd see massive returns for public health, for public safety, uh, for improved health outcomes, you know, um, for public trust. Public trust, the absence of public trust comes from the lack of public investment in systems to generate trust. I see this as a core system for trying to do that. So a lot of my work right now is trying to think about how can I be involved in, in with other people and trying to build these kinds of systems at the, at the state level in Illinois, at, at county levels, and you know, is there some possibility for for integrating academic systems like the university, where you have social work schools, you have law schools, you have medical schools, dental schools, all these people? How can we invert the university so it's not about using communities as laboratories for knowledge generation, but about using the, the university as a laboratory for for the communities to do whatever is useful with them in some kind of way? Mm -hmm. So you know, mm -hmm. all these uh, all these resources are right there, but they're not being utilized really for community benefit. Could we build community health worker systems? that use universities as hubs to, you know, in the way that Paul, Paul Farmer did, instrumentalize the resources of the universities to do something they weren't doing. Fascinating. So that's I largely mean, what I'm focused on right now. I, I, yeah, it's, that's really fascinating. I mean, I've always, it, it, it's, it strikes me in a deep place because I've always thought, why can't we take this stuff that we're doing, these institutions, and get them more directed out? Um, yeah. beyond themselves um, so I, th yeah. I, think I think that's a really great concept uh, Eric Reinhardt thank you so much for your time thank this you. afternoon fascinating conversation uh, I look forward to following your work thank you I appreciate your time okay. see you bye thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working 
I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.